You're listening to the audio version of the Frontline documentary America's Great Divide from Obama to Trump. This special presentation is being offered in eight episodes. Here is episode one. Tonight, this country goes into 2020 as divided as it's ever been. From Frontline's award-winning political team, a two-night special series, years of reporting, investigating the conflicts and crossing the divide. People were angry. Cascade of outrage. Outrage machine. Are they going to start storming the gates? Frontline begins its 2020 political coverage with the epic story of how we got here. The nation's first African-American A president. decade of division defined by Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Make America great again! The third president in U.S. history to be impeached. Today, there's just a lack of respect to assume the other side is not just the political opponent, but the enemy. And what this produces is two Americans that are separate not only in their partisan affiliation, but in pretty much everything. Tonight on Frontline, part one of America's Great Divide. Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Major support is provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. And by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. Additional support is provided by the Abrams Foundation, committed to excellence in journalism. The Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The John and Helen Glessner Family Trust, supporting trustworthy journalism that informs and inspires. The Heising Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. And by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler, and additional support from Laura DeBonis and Scott Nathan. I remember when Barack Obama got the call uh, that he was going to make the keynote speech at the Democratic Convention in 2004. And as soon as he hung up the phone, he turned to me and he said, I know what I want to say. Former Obama strategist David Axelrod. I want to tell my story as part of the larger American story. He delivered the speech of his life. Tonight is a particular honor for me because, let's face it, my presence on this stage is pretty unlikely. My father was a foreign student, born and raised in a small village in Kenya. My parents shared not only an improbable love, they shared an abiding faith in the possibilities of this nation. Washington Post reporter Wesley Lowry. The idea of Barack Obama being unique in so many ways, unique with his funny name, the unique with his skin color, unique with his message that, look, I'm not a creature of Washington. I'm new. I'm just showing up. I'm willing to work across the aisle. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. 
There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. He was a star that we hadn't seen a politician like that before. Not in recent history. Former Fox News anchor, Megyn Kelly. He's gonna tell it like it is. And you know, you can believe in what he says. And he doesn't seem to be so wrapped up in this partisan divide. Thank you very much, everybody. God bless you. He was gonna be the one who was gonna try to heal that wound. Barack Obama arrived with a promise of unity. Yes, we can heal this nation. But his presidency would usher in an age of unprecedented anger, Afro-Leninism, resentment, political conflict, the Republicans messed up so bad. polarization. A turning point in America's great divide. Presidential contenders began their final push in Iowa today. And because somebody stood up, a few more stood up, and then a few thousand stood up, and then a few million stood up. Iowa, I need you to stand up. Former Obama advisor Ben Rhodes. I think what Obama represented was generational change. Here's a younger person unburdened by some of the old fights of the past. He obviously represented racial change in a way that was very motivating to African Americans. We will win this election. We will change the course of history and the real journey to heal the nation and repair the world will have truly begun. Thank you. He was also just an incredibly talented and charismatic and inspirational politician. Obama's political rise came at a time when America was increasingly divided. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. At the end of George W. Bush's presidency, the nation was reeling. The country had been through eight tumultuous years. Steve Schmidt was a Bush advisor and counselor to Vice President Cheney. We saw a war fought over weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist. We saw the United States mired in a civil war in Iraq. And what Barack Obama was offering was widely appealing. He represented generational change. We can finally bring the change we need to Washington. We are ready to take this country in a fundamentally new direction. In 2008, as Obama ran for president, he delivered a simple message. Author and journalist Matt Bai. There was a real ability to project onto Obama what you wanted to see, and he encouraged that. I mean, hope and change is not a, it's not an agenda. You know, hope and change doesn't mean anything. Hope and change basically says to the public, whatever you think hope and change look like, that's what I can be. Democrats weren't the only ones looking for a change. For Republicans, Sarah Palin ignited a new political force. Megyn Kelly. Sarah Palin came out and brought the House down. She electrified that GOP base 
like no one I had ever seen. And you recall, that was one of the times where the prompter failed and she just ad-libbed it. I love those hockey moms. You know, they say the difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull, lipstick. And people loved it. She was almost a pre-Trump in the way that she just sort of had this matter-of-fact and sort of folksy, she wasn't too highbrow. Uh, and so real Americans, you know, regular folks, could relate to her. Well, I'm not a member of the permanent political establishment. Breitbart editor-in-chief Alex Marlowe. She was the beginning of the shift where the people began to believe that they could take the power back from the elite. I've learned quickly these last few days that if you're not a member in good standing of the Washington elite, then some in the media consider a candidate unqualified for that reason alone. But... Steve Schmidt. She tapped into a simmering grievance in the country that's real. Uh, there's a rebellion that's taken place in this country against the elites. For her supporters, she was heroic. But in New York, she was made into a joke. Sarah Palin. First off, I just want to say how excited I am to be in front of both the liberal elite media as well as the liberal regular media. <laughs> I am looking forward to a portion of your questions. So uh, let's get started. Yes, you. You said that you'd like to visit the, quote, pro-America parts of the country. Are there parts of the country that you consider un-American? Yes, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Delaware, California. <laughs> when you started to see, you know, the shine come off of that car was the Katie Couric interview. What newspapers and magazines did you regularly read before you were tapped? Over time, as the camera usually does, it brings out the truth. Um, all of them, any of them that um, have, have been in front of me over all these years, um, I, have a I have a vast variety of sources where we can... But most Republicans, who already dislike the media, blamed Katie for that. Kind of suggested it seems like, wow, how could you keep in touch with what the rest of Washington, D.C. may be thinking and doing when you live up there in Alaska? Believe me, Alaska is like a microcosm of America. Most Republicans looked at that and said she was set up, that was a gotcha question, and stood by Palin, and it just made them hate the media more. I was reading today a copy of the New York Times. GOP pollster Frank Luntz. If you want to pinpoint the moment when the right completely rejected the left, we have a scarcity of common sense. I think it was over the Sarah Palin nomination. Now, this is not a man who sees America as you and I see And for one brief, shining moment, the right saw her as everything they were looking for. Brash, tough, independent. Someone who said what they meant and meant what they said and wouldn't edit it for anyone. She's something else. Sarah Palin has completely transformed Republican Party. McCain and Palin wouldn't prevail. 
but the populist fervor would grow. Why were you right about this one? Did you know how great she is? It's the inauguration day of the nation's first African-American president. Hundreds of thousands of Barack Obama had promised unity. Much of the country seemed to believe he could deliver it. Former Republican House Minority Whip Eric Cantor. I looked out, never forget, from the west front of the Capitol all the way down to the monument. And I think it's about a mile. And all you could see were people, a sea of people. The fact that our country elected a black president is just, it was huge in significance. Former Obama advisor Broderick Johnson. The thing I remember most about that day was a, an older white man turning to me and my daughter and him saying to her, young lady, you could be up there one day. You could be president of the United States. I will never, ever forget that moment. PBS NewsHour anchor Judy Woodruff. Even Americans who had been skeptical of Barack Obama were uh, giving him a look, listening to what he was saying. I think there was just an enormous amount of goodwill toward him and toward the possibility of what might be under this first African-American president. Congratulations, Mr. President. PBS NewsHour reporter Yamichelle Sindor. Obama led with that message of, we are now going to come together, we're going to unify this country. Even if you didn't back me, I'm now going to usher in this better part of your life. First couple to arrive at the neighborhood ball. The first ever neighborhood ball open to the public. He seemed like a kind of redemptive vision for American politics. Author and journalist Jelani Cobb. People on the national stage saw Barack Obama as a kind of man apart from the pettiness, the various kinds of ways in which politics did not reflect the highest aspirations of the United States as a society. And he's black. In retrospect, it's easy to see how that was a doomed mission from the start. In fact, that very evening, across Washington, Republican leaders gathered. The New York Times Magazine's Robert Draper. A meeting, a dinner took place in the famous steakhouse in downtown Washington. Frank Luntz. The room was filled. It was a who's who of ranking members who had at one point been committee chairman or in the majority who now wondered out loud whether they were in the permanent minority. Many of them had attended Obama's inauguration. And they had seen that breathtaking spectacle, and it felt like a wholesale repudiation of the Republican Party. As the night wore on, they talked about a plan of attack. Former Speaker Newt Gingrich. The point I made was that we had to be prepared to run a full court press and we had to see how Obama behaved and to offer an alternative to what he wanted to do. They would try to block the president, fight his agenda, exploit the divide. Uh, I thought he could be defeated partly by his own ideology and by his own uh, behaviors. 
Ball gowns are on their way to the cleaners. The party is over for both the new president and the nation. He is facing many sobering challenges. Economy. It's a frustration with the economy. It's Back to the economy, then. Obviously, it's issue number one. It's on the front pages of every newspaper. Former GOP advisor Steve Schmidt. The economy that Barack Obama inherited, I think, is the defining event of this generation, even more so than 9-11, and it profoundly reshaped American politics. Anger from the U.S. public toward bankers is high. The economy was collapsing. Trillions of dollars had been used to prop up Wall Street. Middle-class Americans were angry. Took to the streets to express their anger. Frustration with financial bigwigs continues to grow. Former conservative radio host Charlie Sykes. The way it looked from ground level was that the big banks, the people who had created the financial crisis, were being bailed out when the little guy was being screwed. Comes on the heels of growing public anger aimed at banks, which backlash against Wall Street. Before he could deliver on his promise of unity, Obama had to confront the economic crisis. Obama strategist David Axelrod. We were told by our economic advisors that there was a one in three chance that the country would slip into a second Great Depression. We were on a ledge, and we could fall off that ledge. His new Secretary of the Treasury was overwhelmed. Timothy Geithner. We'd already thrown trillions and trillions of dollars at the problem, and I think uh, it was, you know, it was a very perilous moment, very existential moment at that point. Washington Post reporter Dan Balls. How do you respond to that? Not only how do you respond to it in terms of getting the economy moving again, but how do you respond to it in holding people accountable for what happened? Um, and that was a definition moment. Some of his political advisors argued for what they called Old Testament justice, punishing the banks. Author and journalist Noam Scheiber. David Axelrod, Obama's top political advisor, very much wanted some scalps. <laughs> Robert Gibbs, who was the press secretary, but also a very senior political aide, wanted scalps. Geithner told the president, taking on the banks could make the economic crisis much worse. You had to make sure you kept concentrated and focused on the core basic imperative was going to affect the fortunes of, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans, not get too wrapped up in trying to design political theater. In the end, the president would be cautious. Author Robert Reich. Barack Obama is inherently very conservative, and he also wants to believe the best in other people, and he really does believe that everybody can ultimately find common ground and work together. I think it was a mistake because the bankers really cut off very easy. And the public knows it. There was a perception uh, that President Obama flinched at that point, that, that in one way or another, he was not prepared to go there, to, to go after CEOs or to, or to take people to court um, and to charge them with, with things. Anger and distrust of the government would grow. David Axelrod. It was deeply, deeply unpopular. And this came at a time when people were losing their homes, uh, were losing their jobs, and felt like they had been abandoned. Conservative columnist Ann Coulter. The rich and the powerful get away with anything. Oops! <laughs> Oops! They F up! 
and and I have to share in the losses, and every American does. I mean, that just, it just burns up ordinary people. It is just ordinary middle-class people thinking, I can't get away with that. The government is promoting bad behavior because we And on cable television, the talk had already begun of something they called a tea party. Author and journalist David Wessel. The word tea party is born in a CNBC moment when Rick Santelli, a somewhat um, agitated, even under the best of circumstances, uh, reporter for CNBC in Chicago, starts to uh, uh, starts an uproar. This is America. How many of you people want to pay for your neighbor's mortgage that has an extra bathroom and can't pay their bills? Raise their hand. How about we all? President Obama, are you listening? We're thinking of having a Chicago Tea Party in July. All you capitalists that want to show up to Lake Michigan, I'm going to start organizing. This created a level of anger like I haven't seen since I got involved in politics in the 1980s. GOP pollster Frank Luntz. People really, really resented this president for siding with the rich and the powerful and forgetting them. That was the onus where the Tea Party was created. You've got to be kidding me. What are we putting up with, America? And that'll get the economy kicking. Well, did it? No, it didn't. $450 billion down a crapper. Let's give us a trillion dollars, and oh, everything will be great. Well, exactly the opposite happened. So can we revoke that bailout now? Even as the economic crisis was roiling the country, on Capitol Hill, Barack Obama wanted to push Congress to take on another divisive issue, overhauling health care. David Axelrod. I was his political advisor, and I understood how much political currency it would take to pass that law. And he said, well, what are we supposed to do, put our approval rating on the shelf and admire it for the next eight years, or are we supposed to draw down on it to try and solve some of these really big, uh, intractable problems. So let there be no doubt, healthcare reform cannot wait, it must not wait, and it will not wait another year. We can no longer afford to put healthcare reform on hold. We can't afford to do it. It's time. Charlie Sykes. There is nothing more fraught than healthcare because it is so personal and it is so intimate. And every political party that decides to take on health care in some massive, poorly understood way reaps both the backlash and, 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 and political retaliation. Americans are seriously worried that this is going to destroy the health care their parents get. Ann Coulter. This has been on the left's to-do list since either FDR or LBJ got it done. They've just been waiting, waiting, waiting. When we have the presidency and both houses of Congress, we are going to push this through. It's about too much power going to federal government. The whole point of this is to get everybody enrolled in the government health care From across the divide, Sarah Palin reappeared, wielding a new political weapon. She was a maven on Facebook. Breitbart editor Alex Barlow. The original politician who saw that you could skirt the media and you could get the message out unfiltered, uncut to the public was Sarah Palin. She did that with Facebook. As more Americans delve into the disturbing details of the nationalized health care plan, our collective jaw is dropping. 
And we're saying not just no, but hell no. She exploited fear with a new phrase that went viral, death panels. The America I know and love is not one in which my parents or my baby with Down syndrome will have to stand in front of Obama's death panel. It wasn't true. She is the first of a generation of politicians who live in a post-truth environment. Steve Schmidt had also been a top campaign aide for John McCain's presidential run. He had pushed McCain to select Sarah Palin. And she was, and there's no polite way to say it, but a serial liar. She would say things that are simply not true or things that were picked up from the internet. And this obliteration of fact from fiction, of truth from lie, has become now endemic in American politics. But it started then. She introduced the term death panel when referring to it. The right-wing media ran with it. And we're going to have a government rationing body that tells women with breast cancer you're dead. We now have leftist radicals in charge of your health care decisions rather than doctors. We're, we're hanging by a thread. If you think this country is great, but Obama and the czars are marching our country right off a cliff, save your life. Grab the parachute, pull, and come follow me. Glenn Beck was a former top 40 disc jockey. He rose to the pinnacle of Fox News during the presidency of Barack Obama. To watch the coverage from the right-wing media of the Obama years now is to experience true hysteria. Wesley Lowry, Washington Post. To see Glenn Beck every day and the things he was saying about the president. I've got my little messiah here, my dashboard Obama. I'm going to pray to him later. Maybe get some universal health care. Now, for more insanity and blood shooting out of your eyes, Obama. You would have thought the nation was collapsing. President Obama, why don't you just set us on fire? For the love of Pete, what are you doing? This is not the America I grew up in or you grew up in. When we said change, we didn't mean this. Nobody meant this. It would never have happened without Glenn Beck. Frank Luntz. Glenn Beck was the catalyst for the uprising. If you want to understand Barack Obama, Glenn had the perfect phraseology that took this anger and channeled it into an organization that rose up from nowhere. For Beck and Fox, record ratings. Glenn Beck was the kind of seeding of this conspiracy theory. Ben Rhodes was one of Obama's closest aides. Obama's seeking to control your lives. You know, Obama has a secret plan to do X or to do Y. Or this shadowy figure in the Obama administration wants to regulate every aspect of, of your life. And it kind of starts there. And then it, 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 it gets darker and darker. Facebook and Meetup.com welcomed Beck and other angry Americans. Now they would organize. Charlie Sykes. You had this vast outrage machine that uh, arose on the right. And this, this outrage machine, you're talking about the, you know, the, you know, not just the Tea Party, but talk radio, Fox News, really changed the nature of our politics in ways that I think we're living with, with today. We're mad as hell, and we're not going to take it anymore. 
the outrage machine online. You want to kill my grandparents? You come through me first. Anger on the ground. Get dirty thieves! Yeah. We can't afford it. There is an ugliness with these fringe people who are comparing the president to Hitler. This is not simply a disagreement about policy. This is a repudiation of Obama and more significantly a repudiation of Obama's race. New Yorker writer Jelani Cobb. This church was based on racism. They're depicting Obama as an ape, you know, on, on signs that they're carrying. There are pejorative stereotypes about Africa and Africans. Obama's election offered hope of racial harmony. But in that first year, it was clear that race was a central part of the divide, and his presidency was a flashpoint. Author and journalist Ron Brownstein. Obama was a big symbol. You know, you every time you turned on your TV, you were reminded that the country was changing in fundamental ways. I mean, we had had 200 years of presidents. We had never had one that looked like Barack Obama. And his just mere presence in the White House was a daily reminder that this is a different America than many people had grown up with. And it scared the hell out of a lot of people. Prominent African-American Harvard scholar Henry Louis Gates Jr. One early incident inflamed both sides. Arrested in his own home. His arrest is prompting outrage. The story grabbed national headlines because the man in question is one of the nation's most prominent Professor Henry Louis Gates scholars. is arrested in his own home for trespassing. And Barack Obama says what virtually every black person in the country thought. That the Cambridge police uh, acted stupidly in arresting somebody when they, there was already proof that they were in their own home. Thank you, everybody. All of a sudden, there's pressure on the other side. There are people who are saying that he's anti-cop. There's a concern that he's racist. Glenn Beck. This president, I think, has exposed himself as a guy over and over and over again who has a deep-seated hatred for white people or the white culture. I don't know what it is. This guy is, I believe, a racist. People lost their minds. Obama advisor Ben Rhodes. He had the, the largest drop in his polling numbers of anything that happened in the eight years of the Obama presidency. Hey, uh, a cameo appearance. He apologized. These are issues that are still very sensitive here in America. Uh, and you know, so to the extent that my choice of words didn't illuminate, but rather contributed to more media frenzy, I think that was unfortunate. All right? Thank you, guys. Then he went even further, a photo op. New Yorker editor David Remnick. Obama did this very awkward thing where he called in Henry Louis Gates and the police officer, and they had this beer summit. The New York Times Magazine's Mark Leibovich. He would probably say that that was one of the most ridiculous moments of his presidency. See, not so much that he brought a black Harvard professor and a white Cambridge cop together, but the fact that the media anointed it a beer summit. It was a painful lesson. And the lesson he took from that is like, this is a loser. If I'm weighing in on these racial issues, it's only going to galvanize uh, the, the forces against me. David Axelrod. What I didn't appreciate as much then was just how much Obama would become 
a symbol of a, of change in the country, a change from a you know a white America to a more diverse America, a more cosmopolitan America. I think he became a symbol for segments of our country of change that they did not welcome. Time for a little healing over some beers, my friend. He wants you to pay attention because his poll numbers are tanking. This is a just, folks, it is a lousy, lousy image to present to America. Now they're using the poor cop as a, you know, a stooge here to make believe he did it all. We are skating on very thin ice with this man in the White House, and you've only seen the beginning of it.